Morning, Bethel. So welcome back to Mr. and Mrs. Dr. and Mrs. Wharton. Where are they? The new married couple are back with us. Good to have them back. And Jamie, good to have you back from China. Prayed for you. And so look forward to hearing how the Lord used that trip. So good to have you back as well. Well, as you know, um, if you've been here the last uh, two weeks, uh, we are taking a short break from the book of Luke. Um, which we're going to be in for a while longer. We're about halfway through. We finished chapter 12 a few weeks ago. Um, We'll pick that up in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. Um, But we're doing a short plan break, a little series called Resting and Running. And whether you've recognized it or not, I'm sure you probably have, we have got to learn as Christians how to do both of those things. We need to learn to rest in Jesus. We need to learn to run after Jesus. We can't run to false rests instead of Jesus. And we can't run, run, run because we're not trusting in Jesus. Okay? And by the way, just to be clear in this series, um, we're not talking merely about physical rest, about just taking a break now and then as a Christian, although those are good things. Nor are we merely talking about being hard workers because we're Christians. You know, good old-fashioned Protestant work ethic, which, again, is a good thing, but that's not the the point. Okay, we're talking about soul-level rest and grace-motivated running, gospel-empowered running. So we're talking about the peace of Christ ruling our hearts, whether we're taking a nap or risking our safety in the name of Jesus. And we're talking about the grace of Jesus empowering our lives, whether we're on vacation or whether we're risking, risking, again, our safety or spending ourselves in the name of Jesus. So these are lessons that we need to learn. They're lessons that if we learn them are going to enable us to tend to our own souls to take appropriate and wise rest, the right kind of rest. We're going to be able to enjoy that rest without feeling guilty. These are lessons that are going to empower us to spend ourselves gladly for the sake of others without getting burned out or bitter. These are lessons that are going to free us from the need to save our lives and our comfort and, and stingily guard our schedules. Because the rest and the grace of Jesus is so sweet and it's so strong. And these are also lessons that are going to free us from that kind of low-level guilt that we oftentimes experience, the nervousness that keeps us from being still and knowing that God is God and not us. Okay, We need to learn these lessons. These are lessons that might lead us, might lead you or me, to take on a new ministry endeavor, even if our plate seems full. There are also lessons that might enable you to say no to a good thing, even though you typically hate to disappoint people. And these are also the lessons that are going to help us know the difference between what is right now with this thing that's right in front of us. Okay? We need to learn how to rest, and how to run as Christians. So the last, last two weeks, we looked at Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, this just powerfully rich, pregnant passage. There's so much in there. Um, Jesus is the giver of our Sabbath rest, and we learned that Sabbath is, is God's commitment to provide for his people. He is, Jesus is the perfect provision, okay? At the cross and all the promises that were blood-bought on the cross, he is the perfect provision. We can trust him. We should come to him for that Sabbath rest. Also, Jesus is the giver of rest from enemies, okay? Rest in the Old Testament, kind of underneath what Jesus was saying, was twofold. Sabbath rest, rest from enemies. Jesus is the giver of the rest from enemies. He is the perfect protection. We can trust him. Okay, so Sabbath rest was sabotaged by the serpent, right, back in the garden. And Sabbath rest is restored by the Savior. 
So we've got to come to him. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. Come to Jesus. He is the rest. He's the giver of the true soul rest. He leads us on the path of rest. And I think sometimes, maybe just think about your own heart in these things, I think sometimes we want the gift of rest, but not the giver of the rest. Sometimes we want the destination of rest, but not the path to the rest. Because sometimes there's hard things on that path. Okay? No. If we really want soul rest, rest of soul, we don't need a formula. It doesn't come in a pill. It comes in a person. We need him. We need to come to him. And when we come to him, there is a yoke. Like we looked at last week, there's a burden. He's a king, so we should submit to him, his yoke. He's a teacher. He's an authoritative teacher. And we need to take his yoke on us and learn from him. But don't let, you, don't let that throw you off, okay? Because there are no yokeless, burdenless options out there. It's just not out there. You're always going to assume some yoke, and you're going to listen to somebody. And Jesus' yoke and his burden are the only ones that are really easy and the only ones that are really light, okay? So this morning, we're going to focus our attention now That was the last two weeks. Now we're going to focus our attention ahead to the final rest. Okay? It's the rest to which we must run. And that's not contradictory. That's not an oxymoron. That's wonderful biblical logic. Okay? We're going to consider this run to the rest, both this week and next week. Next week is Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Run the race that's set before you with your eyes fixed on Jesus. Okay, so the last two weeks, Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, it's true, wonderfully true. Come to Jesus. He will give you rest. You can bank on it. Take his yoke on you. Learn from him. You will find rest for your souls. But we still live in a broken, fallen world, and we are going to suffer. We're going to deal with loss and pain. We are in a crooked, broken world. We are going to work and serve. We're going to wear down. We're going to wear thin. We're going to be overwhelmed. We're going to be sad. We're going to be discouraged. We're going to be anxious. We're going to cry out, how long, O Lord? It's reality. We are going to struggle mightily with our own sin and with our own hearts. Our hearts are going to break over the spiritual blindness and sin of others and all the pain and wreckage that it causes. So praise God that there's a rest that's yet to come. We need to run for it. (laughs) Okay, so before we read Hebrews 4, we're going to read the whole chapter. Listen to this illustration that I ran across um, this week as we we begin to study this passage, uh, Hebrews 4. Nobody wants to fall asleep while driving a car, but a remarkable number of people do it. You'd think it'd be obvious, fancy hurtling down the road at 70 miles an hour while being sound asleep. But I know how it happens. The writer here says two or three times in my life, really, that's it? (laughs) You don't drive much. Um, I found myself of necessity driving late at night after a long, tiring day. Even if you stop regularly and drink a lot of coffee, there comes a point when the whole body is sending signals of the brain to the imagination, to the will, whispering louder and louder that it wouldn't matter if you just shut your eyes for a moment. It would only be a minute or two, I mean, seconds or three or four or five, something like that. After all, the car is going along quite merrily just now. Surely it can do without you just for a couple of seconds. And of course, if you give in at that moment, you're in real danger. And so is everyone else anywhere near you on the road. But the point I'm making is that while nobody gets into the car with the aim of falling asleep halfway to their destination, the physical effects of tiredness include... The deceitful whispers that tell you it'll be all right, really. Nothing bad will happen. You might as well nod off for a minute. And when those whispers happen, one of the things you need is clear thinking. You need to recognize the state you're in and take quick and decisive action. Don't think that just because you had the best of intentions when you got into the car, you won't feel sleepy some way down the road. Don't think it can't happen to you. It can. If you don't watch out, it will. 
the writer is insisting this warning isn't for the person, he says, standing, sitting next to you. It's for you. Yes, you. End quote. And me. So this has obviously happened to you if you drive. It's happened to me plenty of times as I've driven, especially really late at night. doesn't matter how much caffeine. There just comes that threshold where it's just too much. But you keep pushing. You know what's really, really helped me at times? is that crazy little rumble strip on the side. So what happens if you are, you know, you're fighting it, and you're, you know, maybe even roll the windows down, you know, just singing out loud, and finally you just kind of give in, you swerve, you hit that rumble strip, especially if you hit it at a pretty severe angle, like not just, ooh, just brushing it, but actually hit it. You have this serious shot of fear that courses through your body, like that, immediately. And you are awakened to a new vigilance by that rumble strip warning. It's a beautiful thing. It inspires fear and some adrenaline, okay? And that fear is a good thing. It is a gift, That's what Hebrews 4 is. It's a rumble strip for our soul. It's a gift for those of us who drift. Let me say that differently. It's a gift for us when we drift. That's the audience that this author is aiming at. Back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, the writer says this, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. That's the danger they were in. And so the whole point of the letter, if you were to look at it in just a really short summary, don't drift, run. Chapter 2, chapter 12. Okay? We'll look at run next week. But there's a warning for us drifters here in chapter 4, and it's sobering, it's going to hopefully inspire some fear in us. I say hopefully, intentionally. It's supposed to, and it's a good thing. I'm praying that it will inspire fear in us. And I hope that you see that that's a good thing before we're done. So it's a gift for those of us who drift. Let's read Hebrews 4 together and then ask God to help us to pay much closer attention to his word. Hebrews chapter 4, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 1198. Therefore, let us fear. Let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they, Israelites in the wilderness, of whom he's just used as an illustration in chapter 3, we have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word that they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, the rest, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. 
Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of joints, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Praise God for his living, active word. Let's pray. Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you that you are not silent. You are not an aloof, transcendent, silent, mysterious God that we have to guess at. But all throughout human history, at many times and in various ways, you spoke through prophets to reveal yourself, to reveal your nature, your character, and your wise and loving commands and path, the path to life. And we are so prone to wander. Our hearts are rock hard by nature and we stick our fingers in our ears. And so we are so thankful that you ultimately didn't settle for the the message through the prophets, but you spoke decisively, finally, ultimately in your son and showed us what you are like, the radiance of your glory in human flesh. And we thank you that he died. He lived and he spoke, he taught and he died for our stony hearts, our wandering hearts, our restless hearts that refused to find their rest in you and looked for that rest in all the wrong places. We thank you that you loved us like that and that Jesus despised the shame and endured the cross for the joy set before him so that we could join him on this path of life and rest on our way to the eternal rest that we've always longed for. So we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life and his death. We thank you that we can come with confidence right now because he is our great high priest, because he blazed the trail, because he mediates between you and us, and because with his sacrifice, he is the sacrifice and the priest, because with that given for us in our place as a substitute, we can be at peace with you, And we can come with confidence in his name to your throne and receive the mercy and grace that we need. We are needy. So put us in touch with our need this morning and cause us to run with confidence to your throne room, to your very presence, and receive that grace. Lord, give us that grace this morning. So we ask for these things in his name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, if, you, if it's helpful for you, there's an outline in the bulletin. You can use that as we walk down, down through this. So first point, the, the rest is yet to come. Pretty simple point. It's very clear in the text. There is a rest that remains. Okay, so yes, you come to Jesus and you find rest. Matthew 11 is true. Yes, you take his yoke upon you. Learn from him, and you will find rest for your souls. But there's also a rest that remains. Okay, so look, just look at the text. I want to show, show it to you in the text. Look at verse 4.1. Therefore, let us fear if 
while a promise remains of entering his rest. So, pretty simple, there remains a promise of entering his rest. It's out there in the future. Look down at verse 6. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, namely the rest, okay, look at verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Okay, this is off in the future, rest. So, (laughs) really simple first point. We're done with it. There remains a rest yet to come. Second point, you can fall short of it. Again, not my point. It's the point in the text. Okay, let's look at it. For one again, therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Coming short of it is possible. Look at verse 2. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also did. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. And what happened? They didn't enter the rest. Look at verse 6. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, they fell short of it. They fell in the wilderness. They did not enter the rest. Look at verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall because it's possible to fall. Now, I know a question many might be asking, okay, right now. Does that mean that a genuine believer, someone who has been born again, spiritual rebirth by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God given this new heart. You know, like it says in Ezekiel, take out the heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh, a soft heart. Given the Holy Spirit to dwell within them, adopted as God's child, justified by faith. Does that mean a genuine believer can lose their salvation, can fall away? No. But you can be deceived. You can think you're the real thing. You can say you're the real thing and not be. Many will say at the end, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we run a lot? Didn't we get really busy in your name, do all these things? You know, I knew you for a while, but then you just kind of, you fell away and then I didn't know you. Depart from me, I never knew you. If you ask those who came out of Egypt, they saw amazing signs and wonders. They were delivered, circumstantially, but their hearts weren't changed. So they got into the wilderness, and what happened? They grumbled. They fell. The slaves were taken out of Egypt, but the slavery to sin wasn't taken out of their hearts. Their hearts were still hard. But if you would have asked them when they came out of Egypt, what would they have said? Are you believers in Yahweh? Good news. He brought you out. He rescued you. Oh, yes. They'd they'd have their hands up. They'd be praising God. If you are familiar with chapter 3, the writer of the Hebrews said, they didn't enter the rest. They fell. And the reason I'm using them as an example for you, audience, as he writes, is because you're drifting and I'm concerned that what happened to them could happen to you. I don't know. It depends on how you respond to the rumble strip. You will prove whether or not you're real by how you respond to the rumble strip. This is Hebrews 3, 12 to 14 logic. If you look in the immediately prior context, he says, take care lest there be in any one of you a sinful, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Take care. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, as long as there's still time, so that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is Deceitful, the hardening, temptation and, and potential is there. The threat is there. So you need to encourage one another. And then he says this. This is so important. 
for we have become partakers if we hold fast firm until the end. He does not say we will become partakers if we hold fast to the end. He says we have become partakers if we hold fast. Do you see what he's saying? If you don't hold fast, you didn't partake. You're not the real thing. It's not you better hold fast if you hope to make it because that's the only way. You've got you've to hold fast enough so that you can be worthy enough so that you can partake of it. No. If you truly partake of it, you will hold fast. Does that make sense? It's really important. This is serious stuff. Okay, we can think about it this way. Let me just speak at it from another angle from a few other texts. Okay, think about it this way. We have to come to terms with the fact that the Bible speaks so often from God's eye view. But we live from the worm's eye view, from our perspective. So it is absolutely unassailably true that those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's so certain it's in past tense. Nobody falls through the cracks. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That is absolutely true of a genuine believer. But we see people that, I mean, don't you see people? You've seen people. And sometimes our own experience is hard to square with Scripture, and we think, but he was just so so fruitful. Well, there's rocky soil. There's sown among thorns Seems like it's alive, seems like it's growing, but it gets choked up, it gets burned out when the test proves the reality or not of that seed, of that soil. Okay? So this is really serious stuff. Our eye view, sometimes we say, well, they prayed a prayer and, you know, they made a decision. Okay, but that's not ultimately decisive if there's no fruit, no effect If you ask a rocky soil professing Christian if they believe, what are they going to say? Of course, especially if you ask them early on when they receive the word with joy, just like the Israelites were so happy when they got delivered from the Red Sea, from the Egyptians following them. But on account of the heat getting turned up in the time of testing, they chuck it or they slowly, surely get indifferent little cynical, little skeptical. If you ask the one who's sown among the thorns, choked out by the worries and cares of this world, the, the riches and pleasures of this life, if they believe, what are they going to say? Of course, oftentimes. And oftentimes, they can sit in church for a long time, even after they've been burned up or choked out. They just keep going through the motions. So, that can happen. And it doesn't mean that a genuine believer can lose their salvation. But these kinds of dynamics, these kinds of dangers and temptations can happen to true believers. Have you ever seen some of those dynamics in your own life, in your own heart, like where the worries and cares of this world are starting to kind of choke out your spiritual life? I've seen it. Does that scare you? It should. If it scares you, that's a good thing. (laughs) If it doesn't scare you, that's a really bad thing. Okay, rumble strips are a gift. Ignoring them is extremely dangerous. In fact, I was sitting there, like, extending the metaphor a little bit further. You know, you you go, what if if you get across, and then it's almost like the eye of the hurricane? Oh, I'm okay. I made it past the, the strip once, you know. You hit it again. I was fine last time in the ditch, over the cliff. Okay? This is serious stuff. Let us fear. This is a command. Verse 1 again. Therefore, so again, big picture here. The rest is yet to come. You can fall short of it. And when I say you, I'm speaking 
not knowing from God's eye view. But if you see drifting, then it's worthy, it's wise, it's loving to give a warning so that those who are real will feel the rumble strip and, whoa, get back on the road. It's loving, okay? The, the really scary thing is if you feel the rumble strip and you just could care less and you don't obey this command, let us fear. That's really bad, okay? Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it, okay? I, I really hope that this text inspires fear in our hearts this morning. And if so, it's had its intended effect, Let's not think that fear is a bad thing necessarily. Okay, this is a splash of cold water spiritually to the face. It's a sobering statement. What are we to fear? Okay, so let us fear. Okay, what? What am I supposed to fear? If you are paying attention to the context of Hebrews, we're to fear drifting. We're to fear unbelief, which is very clear in chapter 3. We are to fear hardness of heart, the deceitfulness of sin that slowly does its work on us and we buy those lies and we get hardened. Okay, no one plans to fall asleep while driving, but it happens. So we need to hear this call to vigilance. So what do you do? Should we get nervous and try to prove to God that we're worthy of his love and acceptance? Should we go do some good works and staple some more fruit on the tree of our life and make it look better so that we can maybe feel better about our life, feel more confident that we're worthy because of our own performance? No! This fear is not somehow contradictory to the gospel. It's complementary to the gospel. So let's let the text tell us what to do with this fear how it should serve us. Point four, do not harden your hearts. This is all over the text. Look back up in chapter three. Just let your eyes scan through this. Um, so he does this little comparison between Moses and, and Jesus and Jesus' superior. And um, verse seven, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice quoting Psalm 95 that Todd read earlier, do not harden your hearts. As when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tried me by testing, saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was angry with his generation, and said, they always go astray, where? In their heart. Don't harden your hearts. Don't go astray in your heart. Take care, verse 12, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Don't harden your heart. Look at verse 13. Encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today so that none of you will be hardened, implied in your heart by the deceitfulness of sin. Again in verse 15. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Okay, quoting, just bringing Psalm 95 back up again. 4.2. For indeed we have had good news preached to us just as they did also, but the word that they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith. Where? In their heart. Their heart was too hard for it to be united. Their heart was impervious to it. It didn't unite with their heart because their hearts were too hard, okay? Look at 4, 7, and 8. He fixes a certain day today, saying through David so long a time, after so long a time, in other words, this, Lord's still speaking this word, okay? It applied back at the Exodus. He spoke it through David hundreds of years later. And he's speaking it again now to you, Hebrews, and to us, Bethel. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So, you and I, we know how this happens. You know how this happens? How do our hearts get hardened? Okay, we face temptation, right? And our conscience and the Holy Spirit are warning us And we really don't want to heed that warning because we really want that temptation. And so we ignore the voice of conscience. We ignore the Spirit of God and His conviction. And we give God the spiritual stiff arm. 
And when we do that over and over again, there's a hardening process to that. Sin is deceitful. It looks like it's the better path, the better option. And our conscience and the Spirit of God says, no, it's a lie, it's a lie, it's a lie. And we go, I can't hear you. Or, so that's with temptation, our hearts can get hardened. Or with sin, let's say we've sinned and the conviction comes. And rather than walking in the light, stepping into the light, it's bright, it's painful, we might have to confess something, we might have to admit something, we might have to make restitution somewhere. That's too hard, too much loss, too much pain. We try to stuff it away, ignore it, hold the beach ball down under the water. And what happens? Slowly, you can't deal honestly, you can't be real and soft when you're doing that. You have to be fake and you get hardened. Okay, it's a dangerous, subtle drift. Okay, so don't harden your heart. Stay soft. Seek softness, okay? Fear God, fear sin, fear drift, fear unbelief, and keep short accounts with God, with others. I think this is one of the main causes of our unrest in our lives. We sin, we don't want to deal with it, so we turn up the volume, we get busy, we avoid quiet reflection, and then our sin mounts, And it makes it all the harder to actually deal with it because it's bigger now. It gets costlier and costlier. And so we avoid dealing with it more and more. Do you see? Do you see the hardening process? Let us fear. Rumble strip. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Don't harden your hearts. Cultivate softness of heart. And then look what else the text says to do. Let us run to enter the rest. Look at 4.11. Really central command, exhortation in this section. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter or strive to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. That same thing that happened to the Israelites, even though you're probably not wandering through a wilderness waiting for food or water, it's the same kind of temptation. It's the same kind of trials and challenges in your life. And so you could follow that same example of disobedience if you're not diligent and vigilant and awake. It's the same kind of thought, same kind of exhortation as back in 3, 12 to 13. Take care, lest there be in any of you a sinful, unbelieving heart. Okay, now listen. This kind of striving, this kind of diligence is not earning your salvation. This is called fighting the good fight of the faith. This is called battling unbelief. This is running the race that's set before you with your eyes fixed on Jesus, okay? The pioneer and perfecter of our faith. This is forsaking drift, repenting of drift, and following Jesus on the road, the race set before us. Okay, so let's run, Bethel, okay, to enter God's rest. Again, we need to hear and heed the command to fear, and we need to hear and heed the command to be diligent to enter that rest, to strive to enter that rest. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Don't, I want you all to enjoy that rest. Don't you want to enjoy that rest? Then we've got to run for it. Let's run for it. Let's help each other run for it. Okay, now let, let's look what the text says next. Verses 12 to 13. Yeah, amen, Barry. Look at what the text says next. Verses 12 to 13. For the word of God, this might seem like it comes out of nowhere. Oftentimes we know these verses, but they're kind of lifted from the context. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Again, heart is so important here. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So let the word cut your heart soft. Cut and keep it soft. Okay, so... If, you, if you're paying attention here or if you're familiar with Hebrews, you'll see that 3.7 
all the way down to 411 is like this extended sermon, this extended application of Psalm 95 for the Hebrews, the ones to whom he's writing. Because Psalm 95 is the Word. And the Word's living and active, and it's speaking. So if you harden your heart, you'll fall, just like the Israelites in the wilderness. There is no deceiving God when you allow the deceitfulness of sin to harden your heart. The Word of God will cut down to the core and show that hard heart for what it is. You can't hide. Okay, it proved true for the Hebrews. God swore in his anger they shall never enter my rest, and they didn't. Okay, they fell in the wilderness. God's word was true. If it happened to them, it could happen to us. So once again, verse 1, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest lest any one of you may, be, may seem to have come short of it. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. But there is another side to this sword. I know it's double-edged, okay? The sword is also a scalpel. It's able, so, so you can't run, you can't hide. The word of the Lord will expose you if you give way to the deceitfulness of sin and you try to deceive him and others. You can't. But it's also the scalpel, and it's able to cut away the deadness and the hardness and keep us soft. So, so listen, in the context of this Psalm 95 sermon, the Word of God is living and active. So today, if you hear it, if you hear his voice, if you hear the Word... Don't harden your hearts. Let this word cut you wide open and cut away the deadness and the hardness from your heart. Let it show show you your heart. Let it show you that the rest remains. Even for sinners like us, there's hope. Even for drifters like us, the rest remains. There's hope. Let it show you Jesus. Let the word show you Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross in our place, He despised the shame. He sat down victorious, which means his work was, his work was finished. That's why there's a rest, because he did the work. And he's at the right hand of the Father. So rather than being hardened, we let the word cut us and keep us soft so that we can repent of our drifting and believe and run to the rest. Be diligent and strive to enter that rest. The rest is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Okay. It's a heavy message, I know. It's convicting. It should be. Fear should rise up. But now for the relief that maybe you hopefully have been waiting for. Okay, look where this text goes next. I love this. It's beautiful. Look at verses 14 to 16 in chapter 4. Right on the heels of such a sobering, fear-inspiring rumble strip of a wake-up call, what does it say in verses 14 to 16? Therefore, I mean, just, you can't run, you can't hide. The Word of God will expose you. There's nowhere to hide. Therefore, Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in all things just like us, and yet he's without sin. So draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of our drifting need, are tempted to go down into the ditch need. This is beautiful. This rumble strip should not cause us to throw up our hands. Oh, well, I'm headed for the ditch. It's inevitable. No. What does a rumble strip do? It makes you wake up and grip the wheel and get back on the road. So hold fast the confession. Hold fast. Get back on the road that's set before you. There is grace. Do you know who blazed the trail? Do you know who your high priest is? So hold fast to the one who can keep you from falling away. This great high priest, Jesus. And this one who is able, he's strong, he's able to keep you from stumbling. He's not just strong, though he's infinitely strong. He's also sympathetic. 
How sweet is that? He knows our weaknesses. Not just because from high in the heavens, he imagines what it must be like to be a little dusty human. No, he's experienced our weaknesses. The one who mediates between us unholy, drifting humans and the holy, holy, holy God is our great high priest. He's been tempted in all things just as we are yet without sin. So he's gracious, he's patient, he's understanding. He's not just able, strong, to help you. He is willing. He is wonderfully willing to help. So let him strengthen the grip of your faith. The rumble strip, grab the wheel, get back on the road, the race set before you. Hold fast to that confession, to what you believe. Don't doubt. Cling to Christ, who's your great high priest. And what happens when we cling to him? He moves our feet. He gets us moving. When we cling to him, our rest, he gets us moving. He'll energize us. He's not going to let us drift. He's going to help us run. And the first place he'll have you run is to the throne of grace. You remember the grace of the gospel. You remember this confession, these things you believe that are true about the great high priest who lived and died for you. And you will have confidence to run to him, drifter. Even though you're guilty like me, rather than running away from him in shame, we run to the throne because it's not a throne of judgment anymore. It's a throne of grace for those who trust in Jesus as their great high priest and their savior. So we can draw near. The rumble strip causes us to swerve back onto the road and run to the throne room to get grace. It's not a throne of judgment. We receive mercy and grace to help us in our need. That rumble strip helps us see our need, and then we run back on the road to the throne room and get the grace that we need. How sweet is that promise? Now, we're basically done, but step back for a moment. Let's look at this in the big picture, okay? Hebrews 4, big picture. Genesis to Revelation, big picture, okay? God's Sabbath rest has been a reality, has been prepared since the seventh day of creation, right? He rested from all his work in the text here in chapter 4. So that's been prepared since the seventh day of creation. Because of the fall, because of our unwillingness to find our rest in him, God also, in addition to his rest, also has been working from then until now. Working to give rescue and relief and rest. And the climax of that work is the work of Christ on the cross. Jesus has worked for us, okay? His perfect life, his substitutionary death, dying the death that we deserve to die in our place, saying, it's finished, I did the work. I paid for it. So he has worked for us, and he is working for us. This very text, the great high priest, mediating. He's our priest now, saying, come, come to me. (laughs) Come to the throne of grace. I'm seated here because my work is finished, and I've got all kinds of mercy and grace to help you in your need. So come with confidence. Come. I'll work for you. I'll keep working for you in order to be your rest, in order to bring you to God's eternal rest. So today, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you hear his voice say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. In heart. That's my heart. You want that kind of heart? Learn from me. I'll keep it from being hard. And you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So today, if you hear that voice saying those things, don't harden your hearts. Instead, let's take courage 
and hold fast to our confession. Hold fast to Christ, our champion, our great high priest, and let us together approach the throne of grace today and every day over and over again as we are so aware of our proneness to wander, our our spring-loadedness to drift. Approach the throne of grace with confidence to get the mercy and the grace that we need until we enter that rest. So do you see it? God will work for us so that we will now rest in him and forever rest in him. So through Christ, as we draw near, God will give us rest so we can run until we enter that rest. Let's pray. God, I just I thank you for your word. It's so powerful. It's so alive. It's beautiful. It's right where we live. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for condescending and revealing yourself to us. Thank you for working for us. Ever since we rejected rest in you, you've been working so that we could be brought back into that rest. Thank you, Jesus, for willingly emptying yourself and becoming a slave, even to the point of shameful death, naked, tacked to a tree on a public thoroughfare, death on a cross, despising the shame, so that you could blaze a trail and tear open the veil and make it possible for us to enter that rest, to come to you and have rest and find rest and then go through the rest of this life in this broken world yoked to you until we finally reach the rest, the eternal rest with you forever. Thank you. And please help us to fear anything that would take us off that path, that would take us away from you. Help us to fear unbelief, to fear drift. We praise you. (laughs) Thank you for this grace. Help us to come and receive it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.